Hello and welcome to Leaders to Go, a podcast series brought to you by Sports Business Journal, Leaders in Sport, and the Esports Observer. My name is Chris Hanna, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Esports Observer. Right now, you are listening to Conquering Geek Culture, and together with my guests, I will examine how digital entertainment and popular culture impact the sports and esports industry. Hear from the leaders who spearheaded culture and the ones driving it today, and learn what you need to know in order to not lose touch with today and tomorrow. Hello and welcome to another episode of Conquering Geek Culture. My name is Chris Hanna, and today I'm joined by Chris Overhold, CEO of Overactive Media, an entertainment and esports organization that is active in the franchise team ownership space. Thank you, Chris, for making time. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I really want to kick this off with an introduction on overactive media. In your words, what is overactive media? Well, you know, it's evolving every day. <laughs> <laughs> But at our, at our core, we're a team-based esport organization. We're a global organization. And, uh, and our early position in all of this has been to um, very intentionally invest in not only esport teams, but more particularly franchised esport teams that exist and play in the biggest and most, we believe, the most important leagues in the world. And I say it that way very, um, very specifically because um, we've been very intentional around our, our investments in these franchises. We want to be aligned with the most important publishers in the world that have developed what we believe are going to be the most important and valuable leagues in the world. And, um, and where we have made other acquisitions and found ourselves with other holdings, we've divested ourselves of those and refocused our attention only on those closed leagues because we believe that that will be the inherent value in the sustainable business model in the ecosystem globally. And we're going to get back to this in a minute, but prior to Overactive Media, your professional career is very heavy in sports. You held positions with the Toronto Raptors Basketball Club, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, Florida Panthers, Miami Dolphins. And after all of this, you became the CEO of the Canadian Olympic Committee. What got you into Overactive Media and how did you get recruited? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a love story born out of a few years. Um, so uh, uh, you're right. That's a fair characterization of my background. And my, my sport background is very relevant to our business model because of the way we think about the emerging trends in, in eSport and about the company that we want to build. We, um, we really believe what we're building is a 21st century sports media and entertainment company that certainly has its core in eSports but will emerge over time and evolve over some time to include venue management and development, um, perhaps hospitality business, certainly technology, certainly digital media platforms and content, uh, and maybe even ultimately full circle into the professional sports uh, venue uh, and, and industry. So um, again, we're in the very early stages of building out what we think will be a new global sports media and entertainment company. But my origins and my introduction to the esports piece of it really go back to 2016. At that time, I just returned from the Rio Olympic Games, um, very successful games for Canada, and uh, was frankly just trying to take a little time off. 
<laughs> and relax a little bit. And I got a call from a, an old friend of mine, somebody whom I had met in the uh, mid to late 90s, a uh, guy named Sheldon Pollock, who's now our chairman of Overactive Media. And Sheldon and I had known each other when for a brief moment in time, I was working inside the, the uh, computer hardware business for a company called Digital Equipment. Sheldon at the time was a, uh, a channel partner of ours, a reseller of our product, and uh, he owned the company and I was a salesperson at Digital, but uh, we became friends and stayed connected over years. And, uh, and Sheldon called me in that time in 2016, uh, or in 2018 rather, to let me know that, um, that they were looking at, at the potential of attracting an Overwatch franchise to Toronto. And he, he was speaking of it and considering it to be sport. And I thought that was a right read on it. And he asked me to come over and give, me, uh, give, me, give him my opinion on all of it. What he didn't know uh, was that in 2016, I had actually been approached about, uh, about the potential of being the commissioner of the Overwatch League um, by Activision Blizzard. And so in 2016, prior, two years prior to that call from Sheldon, uh, I, had, uh, I had had a real introduction to esports and a real introduction to Activision Blizzard's strategy. And I was really excited by it. I felt it, I, I felt it was very compelling. It was rooted in something that I understood insofar as they were building out a model that looked like the NBA uh, was really, you know, their business model was structured around that, uh, that league structure. And so it made sense to me. And um, when, you, when you considered all of that model against a global audience and a native digital audience, uh, it was, again, very compelling. So while I did not realize the opportunity with Activision Blizzard, when Sheldon called me and told me what they were thinking about, uh, it was an easy leap for me. You've been prepared because you've basically had the information. I did not know, by the way, that you were approached by Activision Blizzard before. Yeah, yeah. It was, again, it was incredible coincidence because, uh, like, I went out to California. I spent four, almost five months talking to them. I went out and met with uh, the Activision team. I met with the Blizzard team, like the hands-on people that, um, that, that built the game and, and were attached to that organization and its culture. And Again, I was very compelled by all of it. It was really an eye-opening for me, and and I was really excited to be talking to them. I thought this is the very front end of a new industry, and that's exciting. And to have a hand, to be in the ground floor of something, really, uh, really compelled me. So when it didn't work out, I was really quite disappointed. Um, and then I went back to my Olympic responsibilities, of course, and we were preparing for the Korean Games, and we had a wonderful games there as well. But Sheldon's call to me was completely uh, out of nowhere. Uh, we had been in touch a little bit over years, but um, when he called me and told me what he was doing, he had no knowledge of my conversations with Activision Blizzard. So it seemed a bit like fate laying its hand on my shoulder, and I didn't, uh, I didn't want to miss that opportunity again. That's great. So if you look at Overactive Media right now, I mean, you own teams in all major franchise leagues. Um, you know, and you mentioned this already in terms of, you know, what, what the plans could be. But right now you own a team in the Overwatch League, the Call of Duty League, the League of Legends, LEC. And, you know, acquiring all these franchise slots required solid investment and commitment. And what's your underlying thesis? Like, why franchise leagues only? Why not, I don't know, a Counter-Strike team in an open ecosystem? Yeah, it's the absolute question. And uh, Counter-Strike, um, let's come back to that. Because we actually own a fourth team in a league called Flashpoint. 
Yep. And the reason that's true is because we felt like the ecosystem around Counter-Strike needed to be reinvented. And so we launched in cooperation with other team-based organizations that you know, TSM, Cloud9, Fun Plus Phoenix. Um, we launched our own league that we own with those organizations. And, and, um, and maybe actually that's a good place to start. We did that because while Counter-Strike is a huge game, and you know, globally popular in every way, we couldn't find a single organization that was actually making money in Counter-Strike. We couldn't find an organization that was running a business that was compelling to us. And that's because the model revolved around, you know, if you owned a Counter-Strike team, you were forced to play in one of those, in one of those leagues. You were forced to play in ESL or Blast Pro. Um, or, you know, any one of a collection of leagues, those being perhaps the two most prominent. And there was just no business model there that, that could be compelling to a team-based organization. You were basically playing for prize money and hoping that you could drag some sponsors along. And if you weren't successful winning and if you weren't successful as a result attracting sponsors, then... You know, you couldn't you couldn't see a way you couldn't see a way to making money. There was no path to profitability around arguably one of the biggest games and most important games in the world. So uh, Dan Fiden at Cloud9 actually was the first to call me and say, you know, we're thinking this way. You know, would you guys be interested in in getting into a conversation with us about how we could build our own league on license from Valve? And so um, really under Dan Dan's leadership and uh, our friends at um, at G and Adam Adamu on our team, our, our co-founder and chief strategy officer, uh, they put together this solution that allowed us to, on license from Valve, build out a new league, but more importantly, as owners in that league, take up a new model where we could sell franchises into it, uh, first to ourselves and then ultimately to other organizations, and then share revenues with those organizations as we monetize that audience and that fan base. So share revenues from broadcast, share revenues from marketing partnership deals with the franchise teams that were invested in it, except that we own the league uh, under the banner of a company called B-Site with the others that I've shared with you. So that's a completely different model. Arguably, <clears throat> the first team-based league-owned opportunity that exists in the world today. And we did that with the absolute conviction in the model because it's the one that we're invested in in, uh, in Call of Duty and Overwatch and certainly in League of Legends. We believe in the closed leagues because, again, it gives us a chance to participate in the enterprise growth of those leagues, to be a marketing engine for it as a team-based organization, but then to benefit from that as that global audience is, is monetized and to be able to share in those broadcast rights and share in, um, in those uh, licensing deals and sponsorship deals that get done. Otherwise, as I said earlier, you're just a team playing for prize money. It's like playing poker every weekend or betting a horse. And that's not, that's not a sustainable business model as we see it. So then that's, that's a lot about replicating the kind of um, existing sports models and make them kind of profitable from a team perspective. Right. And now we're full circle on why I'm involved, because my background is professional sport and I have familiarity with those traditional sport leagues and what works and how you sell marketing partnerships into those deals and how you build a team brand and how you develop digital and social following and how you develop content strategies. And maybe more importantly, I, um, 
modestly, I know how to uh, identify people, talent, that can help us do that really, really well. Because that's certainly, those aren't all of my areas of expertise, um, but I certainly know how to build teams that know how to do that well. And um, again, modestly said, I think we're off to a pretty good start in that way. So esports is a really young industry. And when I say esports, you know, I'm talking specifically about the leagues and, and you know, games that we spoke about. Um, compared to traditional sports, it's still fairly young. What's your take on this, given your, you know, heavy sports background? And how do you, how do you assess the success of the leagues you're in? Because they're all fairly new. I mean, guess you see growth rates, but how do you know that you're on track with everything you're doing? Yeah, great question. And it has a bunch of, a bunch of answers. So the first thing I would say is I totally, and we totally agree with you. This is early, early days. Think about the NFL, a hundred year league. Imagine being in year two or year three of that league. <laughs> you know, you can imagine some of the challenges it would have faced, some of the conversations you would have been having among owners. There's a great book by Michael McCambridge called America's Game. And it talks about the, you know, the seminal days of the NFL. And I can tell you in its own way, they, they were dealing with many of the same challenges that we deal with as, as owners as well. And, um, you know, you have to have a, a long view to this industry. You have to have a certain patience with some of its, uh, you know, egocentric idiosyncrasies, I would say, uh, that come with it. And you're going to need to, um, you know, you're going to need to be, of course, well capitalized and patient as you develop your business around it. But again, I would come back immediately to, but if, if you're not invested in a business model that you can see has growth and potential, then, you know, we would argue that you're, you're not in the right place. Again, you can, you can develop a great organization that wins, but nobody wins every weekend, right? You can develop a, a winning culture, but that winning culture can't always attract strategically the marketing partners that it needs because it can't always win. It's just not the way sport works. So, you know, we need to focus in building our business and building and being a hand at building our leagues as franchise holders we need to focus at being really good in the boardroom. You know, we have to field competitive teams. We need to, you know, we need to have strategies for how we build our teams and how we compete on the field of play, of course. But we equally need to be focused outside the lines. You know, we need to, we need to win in the boardroom. We need to be able to build great teams of people to deliver on our business results. And we need to be good at that every day, every week, every month, every year. And we need to attract great people who can help us build sustainable business results. On the athlete side, we equally need to demonstrate some patience there. But I would also say, you know, as an early franchise in these leagues, we should be expected to provide leadership to these young men and to some cases women who are starting to think of themselves as professionals, who are starting to, um, you know, garner a lot of attention on social media and to some degree commercially. And, you know, I like to think that part of our job is to help them understand what it means to be a professional in these leagues. And I can tell you, it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing. I'm a, I'm a father and I've raised two boys. They're 26 and 24 now. And, um, you know, I know, I know what it means to, uh, to raise a young man. And in many cases, uh, again, most of our professional players, all of our professional players are young men right now. But these young men and women have not had the benefit of coming up in a system, right? They, they're strong players. They're, they're great at what they do. But, you know, unlike hockey in this country and perhaps um, 
European football, soccer in your country, they haven't had the benefit of coming through academies and being seasoned in those ways. They haven't had the opportunity to be, um, you know, coached along in a professional manner. Uh, they don't yet even know what it means to be a pro and make a six-figure income. And so we are starting to spend a lot of time with our players, um, educating them around what that means to be a pro, to be engaged in a business, to help support the marketing efforts of that business, um, you know, to be accountable to, you know, to what it means to be accountable to being paid a six-figure paycheck to play professionally. All of those things are, I think, uh, our responsibility as well. And, you know, sometimes that comes with some tough conversations and sometimes uh, it requires us to, us to take a, um, you know, a, a very, frankly, a very counter position, I think, in some cases to the community. You know, the community only sees their love for a player or for a team. They don't necessarily, you know, see or understand the business. And we've uh, we found ourselves in some in some challenging conversations while we're busy helping our players mature into their professional status. So. Again, there's a lot, I point to that only as an indication of, you're right, this is a very early industry. It doesn't have this yet. It doesn't have the structure around it that um, matures a player into professional status. And so some of what we're doing right now is, uh, as an organization is bringing focus to that. And I think that's a really interesting point because whenever we speak to teams and team owners, that's a topic that comes up frequently. You know, the responsibility of dealing with young adults, you know, who are not with a family, who most likely then also live in gaming houses, right, who go to an office setting, who are not used to all the things you mentioned, you know, and we're talking also media training, like all these kind of things, like that's a solid responsibility on the shoulders of an organization. It really is. And one that we take very seriously. And more than that, we think we have the potential to be better at it than most organizations out there because of the quality of people, you know, executive leadership management that we have in place. Like we've got some top quality folks that, you know, have been attached to Google's brand strategy and Nike's brand development and has been in, have been involved in, you know, various content initiatives and media initiatives like uh, here in Canada, Bell Media and Daz Zone and have worked with some of the biggest marketing sponsorship brands in the world. And so, you know, if you're a 21-year-old making a six-figure salary uh, playing Overwatch or Call of Duty or League of Legends you know, part of your ability to sustain your career is giving yourselves over to what it means to, you know, not only play that game at a high level, but also to learn what it means to be a professional inside a business like that, a mature business. And that's a real leap for some of these young men and women uh, as they get started, of course. So it's not always easy. It's, uh, it's, it can be a very challenging uh, conversation, but, you know, think about it. If you're, If you're an 18-year-old uh, young man right now, where in most of these, these closed leagues, at least, you can't play as a professional unless you're 18, and knowing that your abilities, your physiological abilities are on the downside of the curve by the time you're 24, 25, so you have a, let's say, maybe you're going to have a six to nine-year, eight to 10-year opportunity to build your career as a professional esport player. If you don't kind of give yourself over to what that means early, then your career is likely going to be shorter. 
and your ability to make money is going to be limited because, again, in a growing industry, you might have the opportunity to make more money in the last two or three years of your career than you did in the first five. So what does that mean? Well, it means you need to think about the business that you're building around your, your personal brand. You need to think about how you look after yourself physically. You need to think about how you hydrate and how you sleep and what you eat because all of those things have the potential of extending your career. But if you're not mindful of those things, your career will be shorter and so too will your opportunity to be a pro in it. So again, back to where we started, I really think it's our job as a leader in the industry to you know, make our athletes aware of that and then to build systems and strategy for them that can help them be that, you know, be successful in those ways. And if we can do that, then we'll always be able to attract top talent because that talent will know that they can come to overactive media and have a great career and make great money and be successful on and off the field of play. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the business model and building a business model for esports games and leagues. Now we talked about talent, you know, and the responsibility towards players in the team. What do you consider the biggest challenges in esports right now? And, you know, coming at it from an angle, you invested a lot of money in these kind of franchise slots. So if we fast forward, it can be 10 years, can be more years. What needs to change right now in order to make your investment work out? Well, I don't know that anything needs to change per se, but I do think we just need to get progressively better and be committed to continuous improvement in the things that we're focused on. So, you know, the teams are the engines. So of course we need to continue to attract great players and, and put forward a competitive side, you know, that can, can be um, fun to watch and compelling. And, and again, competitive perennial contenders, you know, we're really proud of our, Our LEC team that, of course, plays out of Berlin, but um, is emanates from our, uh, our European head office in Madrid. But the Mad Lions have just qualified for the World Championships this past weekend. And, um, you know, the LEC has existed for two years. And uh, our original team was under the brand of Splice. But we've now uh, qualified for World Championships in the two years that we've owned an LEC team. And that's a streak that we're going to want to uh, continue. And of course, uh, you know, you as a sport organization, you should want to be perennial contenders in whatever league that you're um, that you're involved with. So, you know, first, we're going to need to continue to bring attention and and focus to attracting and developing and retaining the best players so we can continue to be competitive. Secondly, we're going to need to attract and retain the best quality business people that we can so that we can deliver on our business results. And that starts, of course, with Uh, delivering great marketing partnerships to our teams and to our brands here in Toronto and, of course, in Europe as well. And again, we've got a great group of folks that are doing that at a high level right now. Um, we just got uh, some information from Activision Blizzard about our relative standing amongst other teams in both uh, Call of Duty and Overwatch. And I could not be more happy about uh, the work that that team has done and the results it's produced. And maybe as significantly the deals that we've done, you know, we've been able to attract non-endemic brands to our business. We, we have one partner in the endemic space. All of our other partners are non-endemic. Um, we pitched almost $50 million in business globally over the last two years. And while we haven't won uh, as much as I would have liked to have won, uh, we are well positioned as those brands kind of um, revisit esports as part of their strategy in the next coming years. 
overactive media will be well positioned among those non-endemic brands to welcome them to the industry. When, when you talk to brands, when you speak to potential partners, like where are they at specifically non-endemics? Like what are the questions you get asked the most? Like where do you have to pick them up to make them understand what you do? Yeah. So it's the right question because it's, it's very, like I said, it's seminal work, right? I mean, in a lot of cases, we're needing to educate them around the global ecosystem as a starting point. You know, we're, I would say 90% of the conversations we have, uh, the, the non-endemic partners are arriving to them with very little grounding in the industry, very little understanding of even our business. And we need to spend the first hour in most of those cases, you know, giving them a good understanding as best we can in an hour of, you know, what's the ecosystem? Why are we invested in those closed leagues? What does that mean to them? What are the opportunities? Uh, actually, frankly, we very rarely get past um, kind of a global understanding of esports and why it's, you know, it's risen to be so important in the scheme of things. Then we take, uh, as we, you know, as we and, and my colleagues would have done in other sport uh, uh, properties that we've been inv invested in, we would then take the steps to understand those partners' businesses and understand what they're trying to do with their brands and what objectives they have in line. And then we, you know, in a, in a subsequent meeting, we would want to show them, you know, how we can help them realize those objectives. That's a very, um, I like to think, a very strategic approach to how do you build relationships in that context. And those are the, that's the type of approach, in my experience at least, that produces strategic partners that engage with you for multiple years, as opposed to transactional partners that maybe give you money one year and give you a little bit more money the next year, but engage on, a, on an annual basis or engage in one year and then disappear. And then you have another partner rotate into that category. Again, that's not how you build a sustainable business. So where we have been, frankly, quite diligent, I think, it has been in our pursuit of those non-endemic brands. Candidly, we've resisted the endemic brands for the most part because they typically want to pay us in product and you cannot run a business on product. So, you know, we need, you know, like any business, we need to have cash to pay our players and pay our people and run our business and turn the lights on. And so where, you know, where endemic brands have shown up and say, hey, we'd like to be involved. We'd like to give your players, you know, our products. We've basically said, no, it's OK. Thank you. We'll we'll buy our products and we'll find a, a partner that wants to engage with us in a more strategic way. Um, because, again, we can't run our business in, in that regard. So we've been I like to think uh, we've been very strategic. We're, we're not the biggest sponsorship group in the in the world. We don't. We haven't driven the most money yet, but we've only been doing this two years. And that team, by the way, that's been out selling, um, you know, they've managed to do on the aggregate now more than $5 million in contracts over the last 15 months. They've only been together for about 15 months. And we've done more than a million dollars in new business in a global pandemic <laughs> over the last four months. So we're really quite optimistic about the approach that we're taking and the work that we're doing and the discipline that we're applying to it. And again, that's how we believe you build a sustainable business over time. Yeah, when we stick with optimism, I think it was at Leaders Week in London last year when you spoke about um, esports leagues and how they will eventually outperform traditional sports leagues. Why do you think this is going to happen? And what are, what are the key drivers that you see 
that make esports leagues outperform traditional sports leagues? Well, I saw, um, to give you some indication, uh, you know, it's already relatively true in China, and I, I won't, I'm not going to be able to source um, the report, but I had a friend of mine who spends his professional days in esports and spends a lot of time working in China. Uh, and he sent me a report the other day, a, a reference to report where 484 million people in China refer to themselves as esports fans. And that number is rivaling those that identify themselves as traditional sports fans. So in China, you know, arguably it's already happened. But I think what, what's happening is um, you've got an entire generation uh, that are emerging as um, you've got an entire generation of fans that are emerging as, as sport fans in a different way where I grew up loving baseball and football and hockey and basketball. Um, they might have some appetite for those sports, but they're interested in gaming and they're interested in esports, and they've grown up on platforms that are native digital and global in their orientation, like Twitch, like YouTube gaming um, and, and Facebook and others. And so they don't consume media and entertainment the same way. And it's now true for me as well. I had a paper in my hand, a newspaper in my hand over the weekend. I think that's the first time in months I can remember picking it up and starting to read it where most of my news probably like you, Chris is, you know, taken over the phone and, and the various feeds that come to my phone every day. And I spend the first, you know, half an hour to 45 minutes in, in the morning reading, uh, you know, industry news and business reports and so on, mostly on my phone. You know, I have two boys who are 26 and 24 who could not have been more on the inside to traditional sport growing up and have been fortunate to attend Stanley Cup playoff games and, you know, collegiate football championships and NFL games. And, you know, they they barely watch sports now. They consume highlights because they still have a love for some of these sports, but they'll watch seven minutes of highlights on YouTube. And otherwise, they like to spend their time playing video games and watching esports and particularly their father's teams. Why do you think that traditional sports is losing touch with a younger demographic? Uh, I don't know, except, you know, I'll use baseball as only one example. In a game that I loved when I was a kid, I actually played baseball competitively until I was in my early 20s. Um, it's a very linear game. It, um, you know, it's, it's kind of point A to point B. There is certainly a decent amount of strategy involved, but not in the same in, not in the same way. I, I think broadcast has really in traditional sports has, has really not evolved to compel the younger fan. And particularly as it relates to how younger fans engage around the experience, like part of the, uh, part of the humor in watching our teams play, uh, frankly, is watching the back and forth on the chat uh, while the game is going on, you know, watching our call of duty team play a couple of weekends ago and, watching the chat back and forth between our fans and the opposing team's fans and, you know, frankly, some of the trash talk and all of it. <laughs> Esports gives our fans a certain freedom to engage on their own terms and in very visceral ways that I don't think traditional sport has yet figured out. And frankly, our so traditional sport is so compelled by the media partners that it has. Like imagine, imagine, I'll make this up, Imagine fans of two uh, very competitive football teams in the United States, NFL teams. And then imagine a bunch of fans, like if it happened tomorrow, 
and we were watching, I don't know, the New England Patriots, Tom Brady's old team, play Tom Brady's new team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And imagine that the lower third of your television screen was actually all of the fans talking to each other about how they're feeling about the performance of those players. That would all at once be a game changer for that league and scare most every one of their marketing partners to death, right? They, they wouldn't know what to do with, with the very, um, again, I'll use the word visceral, the very visceral nature of the fan expression, right? Whereas esports, it's, you know, it's not always easy, but it has grown up, you know, that, that kind of engagement on the fans perspective has grown up that way. So I think it's a very challenging uh, port for existing fans of traditional sport to give themselves over to some of the high levels of engagement that esports already represents and has been native to it. And, and I think that's where brands are seeing the opportunity, you know, the 18 to 34 demo and, you know, as a fraction of that, the 18 and 25 demo, like basketball appeals to some of that hockey, less so, you know, football, tennis, golf. I mean, 18-year-old kids are not watching tennis and golf these days with little exception. So if you're those sports, you're aging out. And if you're aging out, then you're not compelling to brands who pay your bills. And that's a different storyline. So that's really insightful. I have one question that I have to ask you. Um, and that is basically based on your background with the Canadian Olympic Committee. So what is your take on esports in the Olympics? Should it be Olympic? Shouldn't it be? So a couple of things here. First of all, the Olympic Committee over years has actually demonstrated an ability, demonstrated an ability to pivot in the direction of younger audiences. And I'll give you an example of that. You know, the Winter Olympics, uh, not so long ago, uh, adapted and started to expand its program to include, uh, I don't know, slope-style skiing and slope-style snowboarding. Uh, snowboard and ski cross, um, big air. Uh, before that, um, you know, ski, uh, ski jumping and, and, um, and uh, a ski aerial. These are all adaptations to the winter sport program in the last 10 or 15 years that have um, brought a youth, a youth, more youthful attention to the winter sport program. And I think uh, the Olympics is quite aware of the challenge that I just mentioned that, you know, those fans of the Olympic uh, games, both winter and summer are getting older. Um, they are aging out. And, and, and as a result, they're going to have a more difficult time, I think, creating um, engagement with that younger fan base and their sponsors will of course demand that of them. So the Olympic committee, I think has opened their minds to the potential of esports, And I know this because for example, When the games were held in um, in Korea, there was a uh, an exhibition. You know, esports are very important to the nation of South Korea, of course. And there was a StarCraft competitive tournament. A young Canadian woman actually won the tournament. But all of that was happening in the run up to the launch of the Korean Olympic Games. Since then, we've watched uh, the IOC strike a working committee that is meeting regularly to talk about the potential of esports engagement in the global esport or the global sport ecosystem. And they're working um, with the Global Esports Federation, which I'm a proud board member of, uh, to start conversations around all of these things. Uh, we've got representation on that subcommittee. So I think all of those things are good things. And um, 
and I see an openness there in in uh, in the IOC's willingness to take on the conversation in esport that I think should give us, you know, those of us that work in the industry every day, some promise. You know how, how it takes shape. Um, you know which game titles or or you know what does virtual sport or active esports look like? I think those are all great questions still to be answered. But the IOC is engaged in the conversation, and they took that up rather quickly, and that's exciting and should be exciting for every esport fan around the world. So, yes, I do see esports as part of the future program. If I had to hazard a guess, I guess I would predict that um, you might finally see it on the program in L.A. in 28. Uh, I think there would be a collection of reasons, but I think that would be a, uh, a period of time that would be appropriate to kind of let the idea gestate a little bit. So, uh, and you know, if there was, if there was going to be an opportunity, if it wasn't going to be in China, I would choose LA as the next opportunity. So we'll see, but I would say I'm optimistic. Cool. I have two final questions for you and you know, they're more broad and personal. So in interviews like this, are there any questions that you've never been asked, but that you really wanted to answer? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I get asked a broad set of questions, I must say. And I always, you know, I know how much our fan community kind of, um, they value kind of honest and straightforward approach to, you know, the way they enjoy their, their gaming and their esports. And so I try to honest, honestly kind of offer my opinion and I try to do it in a, in a fairly candid but an unvarnished way. So um, I like to think that I've been pretty straightforward in uh, in these that I've done before. So no, I don't think there's a question I need that's begging to be asked or answered at this point. Uh, so then, you know, final question: um, Can you share the best advice that you've ever received, and that can be business or in private life, that you would want others to follow? Well, I don't know that anybody should follow the advice, but I have had lots of good advice over the years. <laughs> uh, you know, at least from my view, but I'm not sure it's for me to give anybody advice. I, I will say. Um, you know, uh, my very first job as a professional was in the insurance business. I started my career in the insurance business. And um, there was a lot about that time that taught me a lot of things. But I worked for a young guy at the time. I was 24. He was 27. And he was my first sales manager. And, um, you know, I was in that business for almost seven years before I left it. And uh, I left it to join uh, the Raptors in my first job in professional sport. And I've been in sport and Olympic sports since. Um, but he said something to me in the first couple of months that I worked with him. His name was John McVeigh. And he, um, I think about it all the time because it's been so true for me in my personal life and in my business life. And that advice was, Chris, in our industry, but I think it, it's equally said of life that if you help enough people get what they're wanting, what they desire, you'll always get what you want. Help enough people get to where they want to get to, and you'll always be successful getting what you want out of life, getting to what you want to achieve. And and I think that's been very true for me. I've been um, I've been always try to be I try to be open to these types of conversations. I try to be open to meetings with people that you know, are curious about my background or interested in what we're doing as a company today or, or, you know, or friends of my sons that, you know, just, you know, want to talk about what it means to get started in a career. I've tried to 
make myself available to those conversations because there's always great outcomes from that. I typically learn things I don't know. Um, and again, over years, I've really benefited from, you know, a, a back and forth exchange, people helping me or the company that I work for or our Olympic athletes, um, you know, in part predisposed to that help because I was able to help them in some way. So as I go along in life, that has not changed. I, I try to avail myself to be helpful. And when I do that, I typically find that um, others are, are happy to help me and us as a company. And that's been really good advice that I've tried to keep in mind and live by. I think that's great advice. I'm really happy that you're in the industry with all the things you're doing. And I'm also really happy again, you know, that you made time to talk to me. So thank you very much for all the insights you gave me today. Chris, my pleasure. And we're here anytime. We'd be happy to chat anytime. Thank you.